that. I always forget to set it to Bible study. So, um, okay, we're just going to start April 20th again, and maybe I can trim off the beginning of the, uh, the thing when we have the uh, video. Okay, uh, April 20th, God gave us a glimpse of the future. Rachel Scott was just eight when her father, Pastor Daryl Scott, walked out on her mother, Beth, leaving her with five children. A year later, Rachel's grandparents helped her mom move to Littleton, Colorado and buy a home. When Rachel was 12, she had a life-changing spiritual encounter. She later wrote in her journal, everyone was there at the altar and I felt so drawn to it. You have to understand that I was so young. To be drawn in that way, it was nothing short of God. That night I accepted Jesus, I was saved. From that time on, her family saw a spiritual depth beginning to develop in Rachel. Two years later, Rachel's mother remarried. During this difficult adjustment, Rachel became increasingly withdrawn and private. When she was 16, her mother gave her a journal on the, the first of many. Rachel began to chronicle her spiritual journey and commit to Christ, a commitment that cost her deeply. She broke up with the boy she loved in order to keep herself chaste and was later rejected by five of her closest friends for talking openly about her faith. On April 20th of 1998, one year to the day before she died, she wrote these words, I have no more personal friends at school, but you know what, it's all worth it to me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. Rachel had no idea of the sacrifice she would ultimately make. On April 20th, 1999, Rachel sat outside the cafeteria when two troubled students armed with guns came up the stairs at Columbine High School. They opened fire, hitting her three times. After leaving to find more victims, they returned to where Rachel lay crying in pain. One of them lifted her head by her ponytail and jeered, do you believe in God? She answered yes. He put the gun to her temple and killed her. About a month later, uh, Rachel's, after Rachel's funeral, her father received a phone call from a stranger who told him about a dream he had. As Darrell recalled, he uh, dreamed about her eyes and flow of tears that were watering something that he couldn't quite see in the dream. He was adamant about the eyes and tears and wanted to know if that meant anything to me. He told me that the dream had haunted him for days and he knew there was a reason for it. Her father had no idea what the dream could mean. Several days later, he picked up Rachel's backpack from the sheriff's office. Inside were two journals, one with a bullet hole through it. He turned to the last page of her most recent diary and was dumbfounded to see a drawing of her eyes with a stream of 13 tears watering a rose. The tears appeared to turn into drops of blood as they touched the rose. The number of tears matched the number of victims at Columbine. It practically took his breath away to see in Rachel's final diary exactly what the stranger had described to him a week earlier. Looking in previous diaries, her parents discovered that same rose drawn a year before Rachel's death. The earlier drawing simply showed the rose with the blood-like drops, not her eyes or the clear tears. Then it showed the rose growing out of a Columbine plant the state flower from which Columbine High School got its name. Rachel's diaries reveal the heart of a young woman who loved the Lord. When the time came to put her faith on the line, she was prepared to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Are you willing to put your faith on the line and speak boldly of your Savior? If we follow Rachel's example of committing ourselves completely to Christ, we too, we too will be willing to sacrifice all if called upon to do so. And Luke 9.24, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it.
but if you give up your life for me, you will find true life. Very wonderful. Very wonderful. I mean, it's not wonderful she got shot, but it's wonderful that she kept her faith in the middle of what went, went on there. You know, it's just kind of hard to understand how the world works sometimes. They what? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very, very sad to read, but very wonderful that uh, she had the faith to uh, get her through that. Uh, you know, what's the point in denying Jesus? I was thinking of that today. I mean, this? I don't think so. Yeah, I, it's just, and it's getting worse every day, which makes denying Jesus all the less likely, if you ask me. I mean, when things are really good, maybe you'd say, I don't know what somebody would say, but who would want to stay here? You know, I keep hearing about all these people that want to live forever and they're trying to get these things to make them live forever. And one guy, uh, uh, I think I had him in an update. Uh, I, I can't remember. Anyway, maybe, maybe it was on the CG report, whatever. This one guy, he spends like two hours every single day of his life. He's like a billionaire and he's got all these treatments that he does. Two, he's 36, 38, 40, somewhere in that range. And he spends all this time every day to keep himself from getting older you're gonna get older there's nothing you can do about that and you're wasting your time i mean he's bound to get you know crashed in an airplane or you know in an accident on the road or something like that die at 52 and he's going to be the laughing stock of the universe I mean, what are you doing you're wasting your time live your life for jesus I, I just i don't understand people like that but whatever okay we're in um two thessalonians oh yeah we gotta pray thank you Heavenly Father, how good it is to be in your presence and to, uh, to share in your word together with others that accept and love your word. Uh, Lord, it is so precious. It is so wonderful to uh, dive into it, to consider that uh, you have inspired these people to uh, give us your word that you intend to guide our lives. So help us to treat it sacredly, to treat it responsibly, and to cling to it during this short life that we have knowing that it is what tells us of jesus and he is the resolution to all of the world's problems we just need jesus in our lives to be taken to a better place where righteousness will reign forever and ever thank you thank you for this word that tells us of jesus and it's in his name we pray amen okay so uh, uh yeah I'm, I'm sure i have prayer requests but i have everything screwed up today so i don't have them in front of me so uh, we will uh, just at the end of the class when we pray out, pray for anybody that's uh, uh, having a difficulty or trial. Sorry about that. I completely messed up from uh, getting started today. Okay, so we're in the book of uh, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and we are in verse 19. 19. Yes, and so we've got uh, a, a Jim uh, wannabe. Yeah, exactly. And this is Rick, and he is in the projects with us every single Saturday. It's unbelievable. He never misses unless he's out of town. Uh, he loves the Lord. And if this guy doesn't know anything else about the Bible, he knows grace. That's one thing about Rick. He knows grace. When he talks to people, he cuts through all of the garbage uh, when he uh, is talking to people. And he basically says, you can't do anything to save yourself. Jesus has done it all. Amen. That is grace. And so he, he's very, very good about this. And uh, so there you go with that. Wonderful stuff. And uh, anyway, it's always a real pleasure to... Uh, did you notice my truck today? Uh -uh. Okay, well, when you go out, I want you to look at the truck. Maybe it'll help you to think of something about 
Uh, we'll just leave it at that. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, so we're in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.19. What was that, Burke? It's not empty. Uh, it's not empty. Oh, you threw some stuff in? Thank you. Thank you. Always appreciate it. I'm going to start at 17. Okay, good. <clears throat> but brothers, I'm in the NIV. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, and it says parentheses in person, not in thought, out of intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly. I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Okay, totally di written totally different, but same thought. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So you can see they dropped out Christ and a couple other things, but uh, it gets the sense across at least. Okay, um, Paul had just noted that he and his associates had been hindered from coming to Thessalonica despite their great desire to see the church once again. <laughs> understanding that he now says for what is our hope in this hope is the object of their efforts which in this case is the church there meaning in Thessalonica and the people in it okay the object of their efforts he continues or joy what is it that they will rejoice in when they stand before the Lord it is those whom they brought along to likewise stand before him Okay, so what we have here is we've got Paul using them as an example of the thing that he, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? They are the object of his hope and joy, rejoicing, all of these kind of things. And the reason why is he's saying, you are the church that we are telling about Jesus. You are the church that we are leading to Jesus. And I'm not talking about the ultimate hope, Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm saying that what is our hope in this is that we have the hope that of eternal life in Christ. And why would we be bothered with that unless you were included in that? And so it's our hope that you will be a participant in this. And it is our joy that you will be with us among the saints in the Lord. And so, you know, when we talk to somebody about Jesus and when we lead them to the Lord, what is it that excites us? It's the fact that we are going to share eternity with that person. I mean, if you've ever talked to somebody about Jesus and they have been converted because of what you have said, they become a part of who you are as a Christian who is going to stand before the Lord someday. They are now a part of the body of believers and you can say, this is my joy. It was telling them about him. And so it's, it becomes, and that's what, that's, what he's trying to convey. That's what I'm telling you, um, not very uh, eloquently, but that is what he's trying to convey. So he says, or crown of rejoicing. A crown is something which denotes honor. In the Greek games, a crown was bestowed upon the champion. Okay, uh, today we get a medal or whatever, or, you know, yeah, I guess you don't get any money in the Olympics, do you? Okay, it's just a medal. So that's your crown of rejoicing, all right? Well, in the Greek games, they got a olive, you know, crown, this thing, and they brought it out, and it was, you know, it didn't last very long, obviously. It probably rotted away before the guy was dead, but it was the, the big thing that they got, which was their honor. And they could go back to their own hometown and they could say, I won this at the Olympiad. And that was their crown of rejoicing. And that's why Paul says elsewhere, 
you know, not to search, uh, seek for a temporary crown, but the eternal crown. I know I paraphrase that, but that is basically what he says. The crown perishes, the earthly one, but the one that Christ gets will never perish, okay? So, <clears throat> crown of rejoicing. A crown is something that denotes honor. In the Greek games, a crown was bestowed upon the champion. All right, it is what all of them strive for, but it is what only the winner would receive. Nowadays, of course, they give you gold, and then they give you silver, and then they give you bronze. And I'm sure in a couple of years, everybody's going to get one of those extra, well, you participated trophies or something, because the world can no longer handle people excelling. So everybody's got to be treated uh, the same, even though one person actually won. Okay, and then they'll deny that the person won because, you know, whatever. They, the world is just turning into this bastion of stupidity. But um, the word translated as rejoicing gives a sense of glorying and exultation. It is what one revels in. In the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs shows that a person with gray hair had such a crown. Let me read you that one. That's from uh, Proverbs 16, verse 31. And it's the person's point of rejoicing, okay? And I'm getting, you know, my beard is turning grayer and grayer every single week, and I love it. I, you know, uh, I was in the bank today, and a guy was standing there, and he said, you're working for a world record, aren't you? I said, I just love this thing. And then I thought about it, and I said, actually, I don't. The only reason why I have this is because Hedico wants me to have a beard. And so I told him that, and a lady was sitting over there, and she said, everybody's talking about my beard in the place today. And this lady says, um, uh, uh, oh, that's so nice of you to have a beard. I said, no. I said, without this beard, I am so handsome, the women won't leave me alone. And so my wife wants me, and she laughed. She thought that was cute. Anyway, um, that's my crown of rejoicing. Okay, Proverbs 16, and uh, let's see here. Verse 31 says, he per oh, that's, oh, yeah, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Okay, so basically what um, Solomon is saying is that you have a silver head, it means that you've had a long life, okay? But if you've had a long life like a uh, mafia don, then obviously that's not a crown of glory, okay? Because you've led a wicked life your whole life. But if you have lived a righteous life, you have lived properly before the Lord and you have gray hair, then that's a real badge of honor. You're an old person, you've lived a righteous life, and there you go. That is your crown of glory. Okay, so um, the reason for this crown of glory was the satisfaction of having lived a long life. Paul and his companions' crown of glorying is that they had lived a fruitful life in Christ. In other words, my crown of glory is the people that I have brought to Jesus. And so anybody that's a faithful Christian that is, we'll say this person established a church, or this person was a missionary and, you know, brought people to the Lord in a, a village, or this person was a Bible teacher, or this person just went down and uh, you get Jose, you know, that came here and visited. He just goes out in the streets and he hands out tracts all day and he talks to people. And he, you know, if he gets an opportunity, then he will uh, tell him, well, this is my story and here's what you need to know about Jesus. And he spends his life trying to tell people about Jesus. And so his fruitful life in Christ would be all of the people that may have come to the Lord through him. And someday he's going to know who they are. They may get a track and leave and, and come to the Lord and never know who he is or never contact him. Um, and when I say never contact him, I'm sure that I haven't seen his tracks that he hands out, but I'm sure it says, you know, his ministry name and all that. And so if they want to contact him, they can. But I had somebody write me a, a letter for Easter, this, this or Resurrection Day, this uh, 
uh, past year. And I'd never heard from them before. It was the first time I'd ever heard from these people. And they said, we've been watching you since Church on the Beach. So they've been watching for like 12, 13 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so you never know who is out there that you may have affected as an individual. You have no idea, you know? I mean, you've told people about the Lord up in Fort Wayne, and then uh, you've done it on when you've uh, done your hobo rides on the uh, the trains. He jumps on trains and goes all over America. He's, he's uh, just got this thing about that. So, you know, he goes on these hobo rides, and then he comes down here and tells, you never know who you've affected, but someday you're going to know. And I was just so grateful to hear from these people because they said they watch every Sunday morning, and then uh, the I think the update, and then they watch the sermon in the evening. Maybe it's uh, the other way around, but I think that's the way they do it. They go to their own church and then they uh, uh, probably, they come and uh, see, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but I had no idea about that. It was just so wonderful to hear from them. So there you go. Um, and this is what Paul is basically saying is that you are our hope, our crown of glory, our, our how did he put it, uh, whatever, the uh, uh, point of rejoicing and all that. He's, he's just letting them know. And once again, I want to make sure you understand, the church is not his hope. Jesus is his hope, but he's talking about what has happened with them, but when they stand before the Lord, okay? So, um, uh, satisfaction of having lived a long life, got it. Um, What could a true evangelist revel in more? I mean, what would be the purpose? And to explain that clearly to the Thessalonians, he then rhetorically asks, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. So there you go. He's made it evident. He's asked it in a rhetorical question, but it's adamantly stating that you are what I have just described. That is what we live for. That's what we long for. And so he writes writes them an epistle. He wants them to know that. And now if you think about that from the perspective of the book of Galatians, because Paul was sincere here. He's not just writing this to butter these people up. He's absolutely sincere that he loves these people. He loves the fact that they have come to Christ, that he was a part of that happening, and that he's still a part of their lives and and increasing their doctrine and their knowledge of the word, okay? And so when you have a church like Corinth, where the people are starting to divide and they're arguing, that's breaking his heart. And then when you have a church like Galatia, which is actually turning away from the gospel entirely. He's literally heartbroken. His greeting is different than any other greeting in in his epistles. His tone is very short. It's very abrupt. And, you know, how did he say it here? I think it's chapter 3 or 4 of Galatians. He says, hang on one second here. I'll see if I can find this. He's talking about um, what happened to them. He he asks, you know, Yeah, here, uh, it's Galatians 4. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell the truth? He was so heartbroken. He reminded them of what they were like when he told them about Jesus. They were so excited that they would have actually pulled out their own eyes and given them to Paul so that he could see better or more clearly. Because that is probably, it's not definitely, but that's probably the affliction that Paul had that he writes about. 
okay? You can infer that all the way through the book of Acts and in his writings, that he probably had uh, bad eyes, and because of that, he used that as a metaphor. You would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me. Now what's happened to you? He's literally heartbroken. And so this is what Paul is saying here, and he's not just saying it to butter him up. He is literally telling the truth that he loves the churches that he had established. And how, you know, I was listening to a, a guy give a sermon one time, and he, uh, I, 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 just somebody sent it to me and asked me to listen to something. And the guy was saying, you know, I have been preaching this church for all of this amount of time, and there are people that have turned away from the message. And he says, these are people that I have baptized. And you could hear the pain in his, his voice that people have turned away from him. They've turned away from the Lord. And he's just like Paul was saying, we had this intimate connection and now it's gone. And he's, it's like losing your own child or something. And so I understand that. I don't know the guy's doctrine. I don't remember anything about it. I just remember that was a part of what somebody asked me to listen to, to evaluate. And I, even if his doctrine was bad, that's not the point. The point is that he was heartbroken that these people were not following the Lord. And I, I can fully understand that. I can fully understand that. You get people that divide the church, they get in arguments and they don't reconcile. People send you a nasty email and they never want to talk to you again because of you know you properly teaching the Bible or you know they disagree with one teeny little issue that has nothing to do with salvation. And you get this and it, it, it robs your sleep it robs your joy. You toss and turn all night long and you think, what, what could I have done differently? What could I have done differently? And it happens all the time in life. I'm talking about my life is that, you know, you, just something happens because you love the fact that these people are out there, that they're pursuing the word. And then something happens to change the direction in them or in their lives. And it causes all kinds of grief. And it's not just, you know, falling away from the word. It's also when they have, you know, a bad experience in their lives. You know, somebody has something happen that's negative in their lives, and I feel that. I feel their, I, I hate to use the word, I feel your pain, but that's basically what it is. You empathize with them, but you know, some of them are 1,500 miles away, and I can't just get in a car and go and give them a hug, but I feel that way. I wish that I could get in a car and drive over there tonight and give them a hug, because I understand how desperately in pain they are at this time. And so, you know, I, I understand Paul's writings here, personally involved with this church and knowing that this is a source of joy to him. Okay, we'll go on. Um, uh, it, it just brought up the part about what Paul said, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Someday Christ is going to come and they are going to be gather, together and Paul will be able to say, this is what my life was all about. It was about making this happen. And I would think that every evangelist and every preacher, that would be their main, main goal is to say, we are expanding the kingdom so that someday these people will be there with us, okay? And it's only a set amount of time. The Bible says that there is a point in time where it is going to end, when the fullness of Gentiles. the Gentiles has come in. And we don't know what that number is. But every single time somebody tells a Gentile about Jesus and that person accepts Jesus is one less person that is going to be saved after that. In other words, there is accounting. What I'm saying to you, and think of this, I think I've given this metaphor before, I may not have, but if you want to build a house, like they just tore down a couple of houses south of me on the key, 
It's just empty lot, which they always do. They go in and they tear down all of the trees that have been there for hundreds of years or 70 or 80 years since the house was built. And my mom would know this because she lived out there before I was born. So she would remember even more intimately than I would. These beautiful little teeny houses with these big properties. And you know, you couldn't see the house from the road. All you saw was the driveway and the, the beautiful nature, okay? And now what they do is they take this, this bulldozer and they bulldoze everything from the road all the way out to the bay. And all you see is nothing. And they put in a house that's so big, there's no room for a lawn. You get a couple of trees stuck in, planters around it. And yeah, it's terrible. It just, but this is the way, yeah, they call them McMansions, right? Um, you're exempt because your property wasn't that type of a property anyway. So anyway, he is exempt. But um, uh, the point that I'm making is now you've got this piece of property that's ready. Or we, even better, you know, that big place over on the corner of 41. I was at Eager Beaver having my car washed today, okay? And um, there's this giant piece of property, giant piece of property. It's like 40 acres that's it's worth millions and millions of dollars. And Benderson went in there yeah. and they're gonna build this garbage there. It's gonna be just junk houses, but forget that. They have a budget set before they build, right? They say, we're going to build this many houses. We're going to put on this many roofs. We're going to have this many streets going between the houses. We're going they have that all set down. Now, who does that? That is called an architect, right? Architect come, they say, we need to have you draw up the plans and, and design this, okay? When the architect draws up this building here, he doesn't draw it up and say, you need to have 18,550 bricks if it's only 16,000 bricks. He knows to the brick how many bricks they need. He also knows how many are normally broken. They figure everything in. They will say you need to have 17,000 feet of, you know, whatever, this, this uh, gauge of copper wire. They know exactly how much copper wire is going to go in there. They know how much plumbing goes into there. They know how many faucets go into there. This is why they're hired. They are architects and they are planning a building, right? So my point about uh, the Lord returning and the Gentiles being saved is that these people know within a very, very precise amount how much money is going to be spent, how much material is going to be used, how much time it will take. They know all of that, right? How much more precise is it that what God is doing? He is building a temple out of people. Okay, you are the temple of the living God. And uh, what does Peter say? You are living stones, okay? So he is building a temple, something that he can reside in for all eternity. Do you think that God has it planned out to the exact moment, the exact soul to be saved, the exact everything? Everything is precise. So as we are living our lives and we're telling people about Jesus, we don't know what that plan is, but he does, okay? That's just the way it is. So that's the point I was trying to make. It's not that we have any effect on what God is doing, but we are making an effect in what God is doing, if that makes any sense at all. He's already got it all figured out. He knows how many people you are going to tell about Jesus today, and he knows how many are going to accept it and how many are going to reject it. He knows all of that. And so when that is done, and if you are doing your part, you are telling people about Jesus, there is a point where somebody is going to open his mouth, he's going to tell somebody about Jesus, that guy is going to believe in his heart, he's going to be saved, and we are going to be gone, and it's going to happen that quickly. That's it. If anybody disagrees with that, they don't know the timing of the Lord, and that 
totally blows away the pre-tribulation and post-tribulation, I'm sorry, mid and post-tribulation raptures. It's pre-tribulation rapture because the Lord is planning something till the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in and then something different is going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And like I said, he's somebody's going to be standing on a street, maybe Jose out in uh, uh, San Antonio, Texas, or maybe my mom at getting coffee at, you know, whatever. Somebody's going to be talking about Jesus. That person's going to believe, and we are going to be out of here that fast. Okay, so, um, yay. yeah, yay. Maybe to, yeah, no, one of my friends always, e she emails me about once a week, and the last thing she always says is, maybe today. Maybe today. Okay, so um, uh, let's see here. The word you, his word you, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, should be taken in an inclusive sense to mean those converts at Thessalonica and all others that have been converted by their ministry. What he is saying is that there will be a great rejoicing when the Lord comes for his people. And those who are faithful in leading others to Christ would stand before him with a multitude who had been brought to him through their efforts. And I know I said this a couple years ago, it just came to mind right now, is that Paul wrote these letters, and those letters are still having an effect today. There are people that will pick up the Bible without ever talking to anybody about Jesus, and they will come to Jesus Christ. They will be saved. And so Paul's ministry did not end the day that they say that he died having his head chopped off. That's not in the Bible. It's an extra biblical thing, but he died, you know, as a martyr in Rome, okay? And if that's the case, that wasn't the end of Paul by a long shot, but at the same time, it wasn't the end of Paul's effects within the church. He's still bringing people to Christ 2,000 years later because he's written this down. So he's not only going to have a crown of rejoicing, he's going to have a giant crown of rejoicing because what he has written is going on and on and on to this day. And he would have no idea about that. He's just writing to people and saying, you know, this is what I, I uh, want you to know and this is how you'll be. He probably had no idea that what he was writing would be included in what we today call the Holy Bible. Now, maybe the Lord revealed it to him. I don't know. But if he didn't, he's going to get a huge surprise someday when... He is brought up to the Lord, and he sees the effect that his writings have had. Anyway, it would be as if they, all this multitude, were decorated with a crown of glory. The Thessalonian converts would be a part of that crown when that day comes. The reason for Paul saying this is to show how much being able to visit the church in Thessalonica really and personally meant to them. Despite their being hindered by Satan... He wanted the believers there to know that it was not an intentional snubbing of them, but a true, a source of true sadness. Okay, life application. When we stand before the Lord, there will be a sense of exultation for each person who has been productive in their Christian life. Those who bring others, I have to turn the page here, sorry about that. And it's stuck together, wouldn't you know that? Okay, so uh, others, Christ, to Christ will be rewarded. Those who minister to others in Christ will be rewarded. Teachers, preachers, and those who give all efforts for Christ that are done in Christ, in faith, will receive their due. So be pleased to work now for this marvelous cause. The rewards and the joy will be heavenly. Okay, It's great, great, great stuff that uh, Paul is telling them. It pertains to us as well. And so, you know, it's up to you. You can... Never tell anybody about Jesus in your whole life. 
that's your prerogative. God does not force that on you, okay? But if you are willing to just simply speak to people or if you're not an eloquent person, get some tracts, hand them out to people, you don't know what kind of effect you're gonna have on people, right? You just don't know. Uh, and there are some ways that are more effective than others, obviously, but the Lord knows your efforts and your heart. And so if you're just doing your job, whatever it is, uh, go back over that list again. Where was that? Um, uh, let's see your 29 page. Okay. Uh, uh, those who bring others to Christ will be rewarded. Those who minister to others in Christ will be rewarded. Teachers, preachers, and those who give. So people that sit in a church and they say, I really can't do anything else, but I can give. They're having an effect. Oh, that reminds me. Okay. I, I might as well say this. This just came to mind. Somebody emailed me a day ago and he said, listen, I want to send some money for pizza. Okay. I told him, don't do that because I still have money. Some people have given and I will probably have pizza next week. Okay. So, uh, because next week is Thursday uh, and um, it doesn't matter. Um, next week would be a good week to have pizza. Okay. Um, I have people that have sent money and then I used a little bit of their money and then other people have sent money in. And so I have to keep a, a reckoning of this. And so I've got enough money right now to last for a couple months of pizza. So don't send any money for pizza right now. Okay. And I, I just, I just don't want people to think, oh, well, Charlie didn't use that money. I, you know, he hasn't mentioned that in the next thing, you know, they're mad at me because I've just backed up on it. I've got all their names right here and I just keep a list of it. And the pizza that we get down from those guys is expensive. So, you know, it's not cheap pizza. So when I buy it, it'll use it up pretty quickly, but it'll take at least two or three times before it's used up. So please, just for now, don't send any money for pizza, even if it's on your heart, okay? Uh, what you could do is go to the local pizza place, have pizza and say a prayer for the people at the Superior Word Church and those who attend online, and that'll be wonderful, okay? I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt the, the thought process, but that just came to mind, and I, it, I just wanna make sure people always know how appreciated that is, okay? Anyway, um, uh, okay, so be pleased to work now for this marvelous cause, Jesus Christ, the rewards and the joy will be heavenly. Okay, good stuff. All right, Rick, we need so, to go on to the next verse. 20, verse. short and sweet. It's short and sweet, and it is also the last verse of this chapter. That's right. Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Okay, and I was in the wrong book, so um, we're in 1 Thessalonians, okay, because I took my marker out, and so uh, it says, yes, for you are our glory and joy. So I like yours more, indeed. I bet it does have that in there, too. So anyway, um, sometimes they take a word like indeed, and they just say for or and, and I don't like when they do that because there's an excitement mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, but I don't know what the Greek word is. I didn't uh, check that today, so uh, yours says indeed, and this one simply says, for you are our glory and or joy. Okay, um, short and to the point, like you said. Um, 20, a question was just submitted and it was followed up with an answer. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? That was what was set forth just a moment ago. Now, Paul restates the thought again in an emphatic form. The Greek more closely reads, 
you here it is you indeed are the glory of us and our joy see i like that more when they include the superlatives because you can see how excited paul is he's writing this these letters and it's like they didn't use exclamation points in greek but it's like he dot 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 you know he's just writing exclamation points and he's underlining things and he's making it bold face and he's highlighting it in yellow and eh, you know um nowadays you get these emojis and people put in a little happy face or you know whatever whatever their uh, emotion is well you can get that from Paul's words, kind of, just because of the way they're structured or formed or whatever, okay? And we can get that from other people as well. But in this case, uh, read it again. The Greek more closely reads, you indeed are the glory of us and our joy. He and his associates literally reveled in the converts they brought to Christ. They were a source of rejoicing because they knew they would share eternal life together. That's exactly what I said a couple minutes ago about the previous verse. Okay, we're getting close to this. I wish they were synced up. Um, we're in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 16, and uh, they are currently in Philippi. Okay, and I don't remember what was published this morning, but I know that I typed this morning that Paul and Barnabas were uh, beaten with rods yesterday, and then today they are thrown into prison. I typed that today, okay? And so in uh, 13 days, that'll be out. And I've got an answer for you as to why they didn't appeal to it, and it's right in the verse. I, it's right in the verse. And, but when you stop and you take the time and you evaluate the verse word by word, you can see exactly. So anyway, that, you'll like it. I know you will. If you want, remind me, and I'll send it to you early, and that way you can see my thoughts on it. Yeah, Macedonia. Oh, that's what went out today. Okay, so Macedonia, come over here, come over to us, and uh, uh, you know, evangelize us. And so, what do they do? Instead of trying to go where the Lord has hindered them all the way in the provinces of Asia, they get on a boat. Now they go over to Macedonia. And so they're in Macedonia, and all of these things start happening, okay? They're telling people about the Lord, and uh, some good things have happened, and some bad things have happened. And right now, I'm in the middle of typing some bad things, okay? But um, uh, they are going to eventually leave Philippi. And where are they going to go? They're going to head on the way down to Thessalonia. They're going to go to Thessalonica, and then they're going to go to Berea, and they're going to make a comment about the Bereans being more noble than the Thessalonians. That's why we don't have an epistle to the Bereans. It's because they didn't need it. The Thessalonians did, and so he had to correct their doctrine and send them a letter, right? I, I'm just assuming that. That's Charlie Garrett 101. But uh, anyway, there's not a letter to the Bereans because they were sound in their doctrine. And so they have this letter to the Thessalonians, first with what he's talking about now, answering some of their questions, and then he's going to have to write another letter saying, don't you remember when I told you, you know? So um, uh, <clears throat> there you go with that. But right now, we're almost synced. They're going to be in Thessalonica soon. And so then us doing this and that, we'll be able to sync them. And I like that. But anyway, we're not there yet. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. So Paul restates the thought in an emphatic form. As I said, the Greek more closely reads, which I won't read again. It is they, the Thessalonians, were a source of rejoicing because they knew they would share eternal life together. For the ages of ages, there would be no struggles such as we face in this current walk. Instead, there will be an eternity of fellowship, glory, and joy because of what is ahead. Paul could say that now, at this time, they were a source of glory and joy. Man, what a wonderful, what a wonderful hope that we possess, okay? You know, <clears throat> when somebody is down, 
I always try to redirect them and say, you know, the future is not going to be like this. And, and, you know, I say, read the 42nd Psalm, read the 43rd Psalm. That'll help get you through this time. Stay in the Word. Don't walk away from the Lord. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Keep reading the Bible. And it can be hard. It can be really difficult because, you know, your life catches up with you. And uh, my life application today, which I'll kind of give you a little hint of that, is they just got beaten. They were thrown into a prison. And the fact is, <clears throat> the most people, when something bad happens, what is the first thing they say? Why me? Well, they add in a word, not just why me, but, oh, God, why did you let this happen to me? Okay? Did Paul say that? Did he, you know, sit there in misery and say, I just don't understand why God has allowed this they to happen to me? Yeah. They were singing in the prison after being beaten. <laughs> Literally, their wounds were open and festering. You can tell that from what's coming with the way, the way it's described after that. But they were sitting there singing. Okay, bad things happen in this world to all people. Okay, we're not exempt from that. There is no immunity from that. Okay, and when people come to Christ and they're told that your life is going to be great and you're going to be, you know, make a lot of money or God wants to bless you abundantly, that is the most damaging theology I can think of. I can't think of anything more damaging than that because people really do lose children. People really do, you know, get in car accidents. People are really crippled, okay? People lose their jobs. People lose their houses. You know, I might go home today and the house might be burned down. I don't know, right? I mean, bad things happen to people and there's no control over it at all. So if you are, if the first thing out of your mouth when something bad happens is, oh God, why did you do this to me? Your theology needs correction, okay? I understand that it's a debilitating thing. I'm not trying to diminish the loss or the sadness or any of that. But God did not do that to you. Satan did when he deceived Adam at the beginning, and we are all living with the consequences of that to this day, okay? Don't blame God for when things like that happen. You can be angry, you know, you can you know, vent it towards him, He's got big shoulders and he can handle it, but don't blame him. He doesn't want that for you, but that may happen to you, okay? So you got to understand the world we live in is not a perfect world. And that's why our hope should be on what's coming, which is what he's writing them about. This is our glory. This, glory. this is our joy. This is our rejoicing, okay? Focus on what God has ahead. If you're focusing on this life, there is nothing good here. There is nothing good. Okay, life application. Uh, this world, there it is. This world is one marked with sin. That leads to all kinds of other troubles. It sounds like what I typed this morning. People we once got along with are now our enemies. This includes many Christians. The fellowship is divided over some really, really petty issues. Divisions are even noted in Paul's letters, especially 1 Corinthians, but all over in there, among the earliest of converts. But it wouldn't always be this way. A time lies ahead where all such things will be behind us, and there will only be understanding, agreement, and perfect fellowship. Therefore, let us strive for these things even now. That's what we should be doing, okay? And, you know, I think, okay, I really don't like this person. I know this person is saved. I don't know how the Lord is ever going to reconcile this person and me, but he's got all of eternity to do it. Okay, I have a friend that says she just wants to go to an island and be left alone for like 10,000 years. Just, I don't want to see anybody. Hey, 
10,000 years is nothing. That's just the beginning of a blip, okay? So whatever. I don't know how the Lord is going to do it, but every petty thing that we have against each other now will be gone. We're all going to be happy among each other. And we're going to say, wow, we really focused on the wrong thing. But we can't see that now. It's hard to think that way now because you don't like this person, you don't like that person, you sure don't like their doctrine, you know it's wrong and it makes you angry and they won't change. And, you know, all these things affect us. All of these things cause division in us and among us. That's not going to be that way. So focus on what's coming. Okay, I know that was a short one, but so was the verse. We're in chapter 3 there, buddy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. Okay, this one says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it would it good to be left in Athens alone. Okay, so uh, this is obviously afterward they left Thessalonica, and where did Paul go? I think his next stop, if I remember, was Athens. I think he went down there, and probably whoever, uh, Timothy or somebody was with him or joined him there later. Um, anyway, I, I don't remember the specifics right now, but that's coming up in Acts chapter 17. That's where Paul will speak to the, uh, 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 not the Agora, the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, anyway, uh, the, the place where they all met. The Agora is in the middle of all of the cities. There's another word. Areopagus, thank you, yes. Um, uh, that is uh, Acts chapter 17, so he's in Athens, and they'll all be meeting up there but this is obviously he's referring to something after his visit to them okay so verse 3 1 the this verse here is hard to reconcile with the account in acts and we'll try to do that when we get to where it is but not only because uh but only because not everything that occurred is recorded there or here okay that's why it's hard to reconcile acts gives a timeline of things and events that happen but not everything Okay, and because of that, we can't know for certain all things that are in there. Paul is using the plural we here. But as has already been seen, it is certainly referring to him himself alone. Okay, this becomes evident in verse 3 5. The use of we is because the letter as a whole was from himself, Silvanus, and Timothy. We saw that right at the beginning of the epistle. It is how we speak and write in English as well. And there's nothing that proves a contradiction in the biblical account in his word excuse me in his words which some people will try to do they'll say well this is a contradiction and blah 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 there's nothing that would do that okay if i write a letter with two other people even if they're not around at the time i will say we okay that's just the way it is we this and we that so and the people that are reading it know they don't need to say well that's a contradiction in his thinking they know we're looking at everything from, you know, hindsight 2020, and it's after it's written, and this doesn't say that, and therefore this is a contradiction. No. The people that received the letter would know exactly what Paul is speaking about. He says, therefore, this is based on the ending words of the previous chapter. Paul had spoken of how eagerly he had wanted to come to Thessalonica, but he was hindered in doing so. But they were to him as his glory and joy. It caused him no little anguish. As he says, when we could endure it no longer, the word he uses gives the sense of a vessel which is overfilled and which is bursting, or as something which is covered in order to keep water out, but which is ready to give in. I got a great example of that. You know, I always save aluminum cans because the projects are right by the recycling place. And so I 
collect aluminum cans and I separate them all out of the garbage at the mall in 7-Eleven every day. And anytime we're walking along and I see an aluminum can, I chuck it in the back of my truck or even in a, a, a light, you know, on Siesta Key, I'll pull up and if there's a can next to the car, I just put the car in park, open the door and chuck it in the back and people probably think, oh, he's, he's taking care of the environment. No, I'm being greedy. I want a penny can. Okay, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, had my bag, you know, I, I, what I use, I got garbage bags. And so I don't like wasting anything. So when I'm done taking out the garbage, I've got these three mil garbage bags. If you don't have the thick ones, when you take out the stuff at the mall, they always get a leak in them. And then when you're walking, you have a line of goo going all over the mall and the next day it's brown and they have to get the pressure washer out. So I get the better bags. I take out the garbage. And then when I'm behind 7-Eleven, I dump out all the garbage and I pull out all the aluminum cans, right? Couple, two weeks ago, I found a $20 bill. Did I say that before? Yeah, I did, yeah. okay, yeah. great stuff, $20 bill. Somebody just threw it in the garbage for me, thank you. Um, so uh, what I do is I take that bag and I rinse it out and I reuse it for recycle because I'm not going to steal brand new bags from the people that own them all. Instead, I use an old used bag. And so I fill up the cans and when it gets full, you have to tie the top so they don't spill out, okay? And so I'm pushing them down and I'm jumping on the bag to get it down because I don't want to take the cans back out and the whole bag splits open and I've got like 15,000. That's what Paul is writing about right now. That's how he felt when he is writing to these people. We couldn't contain it any longer. We could not endure it any longer. So that's a little lesson. Next time you're reading this verse, as you go through the Bible three times a year, okay, when you get to this verse, you can think of me spilling out thousands of cans all over the back of the mall, and I had to pick them all up, and I had to go get another bag from the garbage because you know, that was the one from the day before, right? Anyway, so I just got an old bag and my mom is shaking her head. She, she says, I'm not her son. Apparently, apparently she adopted me or something because the genes <laughs> don't match, whatever. Anyway, but now you can think of that. When you come to this verse, you can know what Paul is saying. We could endure it no longer. Okay, so, uh, and this is a three mil bag. This is not lightweight plastic. But it just... Well, you jumped on it. I know, but I just, I thought it would last and it didn't. So I got to be a little less uh, aggressive with my garbage bags in the future. Anyway, um, the word he uses gives the sense of a vessel. I said that. Okay, so in the words, when we could endure it no longer, or when we could no longer endure it, the we, as noted, is speaking of himself in the sense that he would be left alone in Athens, while the other two would conduct other affairs. Almost as soon as they arrived, Silvanus and Timothy were sent back to Macedonia. That's what the Acts account says. Silvanus went on, went to one area, probably Berea or Philippi, and Timothy went back to Thessalonica. What is left out of Paul's words in this epistle was simply not of importance to the church. They would have already heard from Timothy concerning where Silvanus had gone. As they were gone, he says, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. So he's using the plural, even though he is in Athens alone himself, okay? And so that's why people have a problem with this. But there's no problem because he's writing to the people that they went back to, one of them. The other one went somewhere else and he would have said, well, Paul went down to Athens. Uh, who is the other one? Silvanus went over to Philippi and I'm here. So the we is inclusive. There's no problem with this text, but... People will try to harm your feelings about the Bible and your surety in the word 
by something like this. Trust me on this. For every verse that is in the Bible, there has been 10,000 people that have tried to tear it apart, tried to weaken your faith because of that, and there's no problem at all with this, okay? This is not speaking of the three of them being alone in Athens, but the agreement by the three of them that Paul would stay. That is what's being said here. Timothy, as we will see, and as noted above, was sent back to Thessalonica while Silvanus went elsewhere. During this time, Paul was alone in Athens. Eventually, they met up. I can't remember exactly, like I said. It is something which is rather unusual. He was normally conducted from one place to another due to some unknown affliction. If you follow along with Paul, he's always got somebody with him. Almost always. It's very rare for Paul to say, I was completely alone. Okay? There's always somebody there tending to him. Therefore, while alone in Athens, at least from this account, maybe he had somebody else that, you know, when he went um, uh, just recently in his travels that in the book of Acts, it speaks of more people even though they're not named. So it could be that there are disciples that went along, you know, that just aren't named because they're not important to the story. So somebody may have been in Athens with Paul. It's just not somebody that is relevant to the understanding of what's going on. I don't know. Anyway, therefore, while alone in Athens, he would have been greatly inconvenienced if he was completely alone, and he certainly would have been lonely because Paul was a guy that loved to be around other people. Um, I am to uh, an extent kind of a loner. I like to be left alone. I'm, I'm just not one. But I also like to be around people. I love to talk to people, you know, but when I'm doing my work, I just would just rather be alone, you know? I mean, Hidako, when she's home and it's her day off, I got dogs going back and forth. She takes them out like 872 times a day. There's more going on than my brain can process. When she leaves at 6.30 in the morning to go to work, I give her a hug and those dogs are in their cages or two or three of them don't have to go in the cages and so they just uh, are where they are and they don't move, literally, until I turn on the music at three o'clock because I wanna listen to music while I'm getting the dog food ready to feed them. They go ballistic. They know as soon as they hear music, it's time for, for food. And they just go crazy every single day. And so I go feed the dogs. And then, of course, they go crazy running outside. And then as soon as they're all done, I come back in and I get to work. And they go back into their cages and they lay in their cages or whatever. They, it's very quiet. Okay, I like that. Anyway, but Hidako does keep them going. She, she keeps so those dogs active. Hidako's no longer working. What's going to happen then? I was thinking that today. She's retiring in less than three months, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. <laughs> I, I, Mondays, I'm, she's just going to have to go down to Turtle Beach and leave the house or something. I don't know. because I, I, I Listen, sermon typing day is, I cannot be disturbed by anybody, okay? I, I, any, if the phone rings, I lose concentration. I don't care what it is. It's very, very hard to do the sermon typing. It takes a lot of thinking and a lot of, uh, it's just hard. So I don't know what she's going to do, but you know, she can lock herself up in the bedroom or something. I don't know. We'll figure that out. It, it'll be something accommodating, but I don't know what. I just, but she knows I can't have any noise at all on Monday. It, it's very, very tedious work trying to figure out what are you... T I always say the same thing when I get started in the morning. I wake up and I'm getting ready. I read the Bible and then I say, Lord, prepare my fingers for the battle. I Every single week I say it to him because it's like a battle. It's that 
hard. It's that difficult typing sermons, okay? Maybe it's easy for some people, but I got to tell you what, it is a real struggle. It's like here is a war going on, and I am struggling with this word, trying to prevail over it. And it's, it's very difficult. So, a good question. I don't have an answer to it, okay? We'll find out. We'll find out what it's going to be like when my beautiful wife is retired, which means she got tired, and then she got tired again. She got retired, okay? Um, let's see here. Um, uh, concerning Sylvain. Yes, okay. Uh, not speaking of the three of them. Okay, life application. At times, there are needs which must be considered as more important than our own personal comforts. When these times arise, we can look at what occurred with Paul here and know that it is right and good to allow ourselves to suffer inconvenience for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of those who need attention in that precious, precious message. So there you go. Okay, three, two, give me a second to open the page. And okay, go ahead, three, two. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Okay, it's kind of the same, but it's differently worded. And sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Okay, and you can see how trustworthy Timothy was very early on, okay, because he's just picked up here in Acts 16, right? I mean, he's, Paul circumcised him so that he could go out among them, and I mean, he, he saw something in Timothy that was really outstanding. Yes? Mine reads, God's fellow worker. God, well, um, I don't have the, uh, yes, I do. Give me a second, because seeing as how you brought that up, this will take one second. We're in... Uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, and I may address this uh, further, he calls him a minister of God, okay, and fellow laborer, um, okay, I'm just going to read the Greek because you brought it up, this is, you're the one that's delaying the class, and that's okay, I'm kidding, of course, um, let's see, we're going to go here, and then we're going to go to Bible, B-I-B-L-E, uh, okay, and then it's uh, 1 Thessalonians, whoops, come on, Charlie, you got to hit the, you know, it's not like Bible Gateway takes you directly to where you can type. In other words, when you go to Bible Gateway, it just takes you down there and you start typing. Bible Hub, you have to click on where you want to type, and if not, it doesn't work. And I do that all the time. I, I, I'm just sitting there typing, I look up and there's nothing because, duh. Anyway, uh, and I've been doing this for years. It's not like I, I should uh, have, we're in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. I should have this figured out, but I just don't. Bible Gateway makes it so, so easy. And, you know, it's only like a tenth of a second, but it adds up during the day. Okay, the Greek, and there may be a difference. So let me go down and check the different texts first. Um, there is a difference, and I don't know what it is. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, it, 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 there's a difference in the texts, okay? This one says, Toteo and to egalon, whatever, egelio. And then this one says, Toteo K. It's completely different. So um, I don't have an answer to you without sitting down doing a study, okay? Um, uh, I will give you, uh, if you remind me, I can do that for you. And I may have done it here, but you brought it up, and so I wanted to make sure I didn't let that go. There's a difference in the two texts. The one used for the uh, New King James and the one that you use for the NASB. So, um, uh, like I said, if I don't address that now, just send me an email to remind me, and I will 
I'll, I'll tell you what the difference is. Anyway, um, it is evident from these words that Paul had sent Timothy from Athens, okay? So Timothy is there. He sent him from Athens to Thessalonica. As noted in 3.1, there's no contradiction with this and with the account in Acts as long as Paul's terminology in the use of singular and plural pronouns is properly understood. He then calls Timothy our brother. This makes a fraternal connection between Timothy and the church in Thessalonica. Paul didn't send someone disinterested in the church, but rather someone who was intimately united to it. Further, he then calls him a minister of God. What does yours say? God's fellow minister? God's fellow worker. God's fellow worker. Okay, so it is, it's a little bit different. Um, he calls him a minister of God. It is again a set of words intended to show Paul's care for the church. He didn't just send someone with a note in his hand, which was filled with a bunch of directions. Instead, he sent a minister who was both learned and experienced in his ministerial duties of preaching, teaching, and exhorting. I talk about that a little bit when they introduced Timothy and uh, his situation. You know, Paul saw something in him. He knew maybe he was a convert from when Paul was there the first time, but somehow he was aware that Timothy, you know, his mother was uh, a Jew, his uh, grandmother Eunice, they, they were, you know, versed in the scriptures. They brought him up versed in the scriptures, but there's more to it than that because he, the, the terminology he's using here, Paul understands how to deal with people. He understands how to speak about things. So in my commentary, I think I said, I may be wrong, but I think I said it gave examples of how this could have happened. He's in Lister and Derby. He's in one Maybe Derby says, well, we don't know about this. And so they say, well, Paul, I'm sorry, Timothy, he knows the scriptures. He knows his, he was raised on the Hebrew scriptures. And so we'll send him over and he can answer that question. So he was already a developed person. And that's why Paul saw a value in him. And uh, hey, how's it going, Thor? I got something here for you, buddy. I got this for you. And that's our dinner? Yeah. Okay, thank you. And you got yours? Yeah. Okay, tell that beautiful wife of yours I said hi, okay? Okay, have a wonderful, great, super-duper uh, evening, okay? Okay. All right, love you. Love you. All right. Um, okay, so that's, that's the situation with Timothy. And um, uh, uh, where was I now? My son comes in and interrupts the whole class. Unbelievable. No, not really. He's bringing me dinner so Hidako doesn't have to cook tonight because she worked all day long. So on Thursdays when she doesn't work, I mean, when she does work, I try to always get dinner, and that way she doesn't have to cook, because I'm a really great husband. You are. <laughs> okay. I, I think she would, she would challenge that. I think she would challenge that. Okay, so anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Paul's cared for the church. I said that. Okay, and to the special personage of Timothy, he then says, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Okay, Timothy was perso personally useful to Paul. And he was a person who worked directly along with him in spreading the gospel. It wasn't at all the case that Timothy was of no use to Paul at the time. Rather, he was someone that Paul heavily relied upon and found useful at all times. But the weight of his care for the church at Thessalonica was of greater importance to him than having Timothy stay with him to evangelize. So Paul, like I said, he was a needy guy. He needed to have people around for whatever reason. I've given my speculation on that, and I can't say if it's correct or not, but I would think so because of all the clues about uh, possible bad eyes. Whatever it is, he saw that there was more of a need to send Timothy to Thessalonica than it was for him to stay with him in Athens. 
okay? And that's the way it worked out and everything came out okay in the end. But um, th Paul is just making a point about uh, what he did for the sake of them there in Thessalonica. Okay, so everything about Timothy's credentials, which has been stated here, is to show the superlative nature of Paul's love for the Thessalonians and how much it meant to him that they be properly ministered to by someone that bore even his own abilities. Okay, all of this was done, Paul's words, to establish you. The word establish is one which means a support that fixes plants down. Thus, it is to solidly plant. Paul's intent was the church that he had established would now be more deeply rooted by the coming of Timothy. Okay, and that ought to be the hope of anybody that establishes churches. Okay, uh, yeah, we talked about one guy a while ago that established like 50 churches in Texas. And he wouldn't want to just go establish a church to say, oh, I established a church and now I'm going on to another one. He wouldn't want to go back and visit, and he would want to see that that church is doing well and that it's grounded. And if it's not, to get it grounded, to get it into the Word, okay? I, I can't say it enough. If there's one thing that is important to me, it is that people read the Bible. I, I can't say it enough because if you are not grounded in the Word, then you have no grounding at all, okay? You may be saved, but without a knowledge of the Word, you simply have no grounding. And you also have no reason to believe, not believe anything that you're told. Somebody says, well, the Bible says this, and you have no reason to not believe it. You have to think on scripture. You have to contemplate it, but you can't do that if you don't read it. So read the Bible, think about it. Um, it just, if you have a second language that you're better in than the language that you use, in other words, say you're visiting, you're here in America from uh, Serbia, okay, and you understand Serbian better than English, then study the Bible in Serbian too, okay? If people have told me quite often, and I, this really makes me feel bad, but um, I have a lady I know, she's from Poland, and she says that the Polish Bibles <laughs> Are just poorly translated and that really breaks my heart because her primary language is Polish and so if she doesn't have a, a Bible that's in her primary language she needs to study it in English which is not her primary language and so she may never get the nuances that she would with her own language. Hedeko when she reads a Bible reads an English Bible because the Japanese language is very very technical Okay, and when they translated the Bibles that she has read, she, they write it like it's almost a technical manual. And yeah, I, it, it's almost laughable. And so, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be technical, but what I'm saying is that um, uh, the Japanese language is, I'll tell you something, Korean, I, I'll just give you an example. Korean is the easiest language on the planet to learn to read. I know it doesn't look like it, but it is the simplest language you could possibly learn to read. And I'm talking about if you don't know uh, Roman characters. If you want to learn Malaysian, they use Roman characters, so it's very easy. But for a language that has different characters, once you know how the Korean language works, it's so simple. And yet, it is the hardest language in the world for me to try to speak. It's very difficult. On the other hand, Japanese is probably the most complicated written language on the planet. I'm talking about the people of their own, that breaks my heart. But the point that I'm making is that you need to be in the word. And if you have a second language and that's what you focus on and they have a good translation, 
then read that as well as the English because that will also help you to learn English. Um, I was talking to my friend one time, uh, you know, about the King James Version and what I do. Every, it's the first thing I now do, and I've been doing this for several years, maybe more, um, when I do sermon typing, is the very first thing I do with every single verse, every verse that I evaluate for a sermon or for a Bible study, the first thing I do is I compare it to the King James Version against the original, the Hebrew or the Greek. And I always use apples for apples. In other words, we had two different uh, uh, texts that you just asked about. So I won't use that one. I'll use the one the King James Version uh, translated against. That has been the most helpful thing I have ever done as far as learning the original languages in their, uh, in the sets. Because whether the King James Version is right or not, that's just the one I chose to do this with. Doesn't matter if it's right or not. I am now forced to make a comparison of English to Greek or English to Hebrew. See what I'm saying? And so now I'm learning the nuances of the Hebrew or the English. If you have a second language that you're better at than the English and you do that, you take your language and the English and you go word by word, verse by verse, you will learn the nuances of the second language. It's really that helpful. So that's why I say I'm talking about people that have another language. It, it, if you make comparisons, you are going to learn nuances that will help you learn the language that you are you need to learn, okay? Um, with Hidako, she reads English, but because she has no reference, she doesn't know the nuances. So if she doesn't understand something that is in English, which she's been speaking now for 30, 40 years, whatever, 50 years, however long it's been, she has to ask me. But if she was able to compare it to Japanese, she may be able to make the inference between the two and say, I understand what the English is saying. That's all. I'm just trying to say that if you study and study and study and you use innovation in your studies, you are going to benefit yourself. That's just how I do it, you know, for my studies. But you can do it however you want. But don't just pick up a Bible and read it because you may not be getting the full intent. That's why I have him read one Bible and I read one Bible and then we can compare them. You're, you're benefiting by doing that, okay? You're not doing something wrong. You're actually doing something that will help you productively. Even if it's a badly tra uh, translated Bible, okay? You're going to learn things about that. So use innovation, but more than anything, study the Bible. Read the Bible, okay? That's what I would ask everybody to do all the days of your life. Okay, so we've got uh, the support, the plant being fixed down. That's what he's saying about Thessalonica. And, and more, Paul's desire for them in sending Timothy was to encourage you, his words, encourage you concerning your faith. Paul knew that they were suffering trials for their faith. They were persecuted by unbelieving Jews, and they were ridiculed by unbelieving Gentiles. Like all of us, those at Thessalonica were not super spiritual. Okay, this is one thing that we make this mental error. I, I did it for years. I'm reading the Bible, and I'm reading it from the perspective that the apostles were all very well grounded in their faith. They were very well grounded in scripture. They were, you know, super holy people, okay? And then we think of that with the early churches as well. Well, Paul was there and he established that. It's exactly the opposite. These people were people. They had their own baggage that they carried around with them. The perfect example of this, which I bring up week after week, is Peter. In 
two, Galatians chapter 2. He's just a guy. He was so much just a guy that he fell away from the truth of Jesus Christ. And Paul had to rebuke him in front of the entire congregation. Okay, so don't make the error that you are somehow not as great as these people and therefore you don't, you know, merit the Lord's forgiveness and grace and all that. It's exactly the opposite. These people were just as messed up as every one of us and the Lord saved them and he has saved you and there is nothing that you have done that will ever separate you from him. Okay, these are just people. If Peter, who lived with the Lord, saw the Lord crucified, saw the Lord resurrected, talked with him for 40 days, could fall away from doing what was morally right, so can you. So don't feel like it's the end of the road for you, okay? Um, like all of us, those at Thessalonica were not super spiritual. Rather, they were common people who needed encouragement and they needed uplifting in their faith. Hence, he sent Timothy. Paul knew this, and he sent his trusted companion and fellow worker, Timothy, to accomplish this in them. Okay, before I read the life application, we were talking in church today. Two people died this week. Uh, one, of them, uh, one of them mentioned one of them, and I said, and also this guy, and uh, whoever said it, one of us, we were talking about it. Um, uh, Charles Stanley died, and yeah. everybody that sent me that message, I said the same thing back to them. Watch his son go further left. That's what I think will happen. I think that now that he doesn't have dad's influence and he doesn't have dad's, you know, looking out for him, he's gonna, that church is gonna go further and further left. That's just my guess, okay? Keep an eye on that. We'll see if I'm right or wrong in a year or two if the Lord hasn't come, okay? The other one that died, I just found out about today is Les Feldick. Through the Bible with Les Feldick. He was 91, you said? Okay, they, they think it was about 91 years old, okay? So a uh, couple of people that uh, uh, are pretty well known in the, uh, in the Christian area, and whatever your opinion about them is, they're dead now, okay? If you don't like their doctrine, don't watch it. If you do, whatever. I don't endorse either of them because I haven't watched everything they've ever done, and I was talking to somebody about that, uh, I think it was this morning or yesterday morning. Every time I recommend somebody what happens, I'll get a, a message that, oh, you know, back 13 years ago, he had a sermon. It was three hours and 27 minutes long. And at the two hour and 23 minute point, he said something that, oh, you'd be shocked at. Oh, I can't watch every sermon the guy's ever done. He's probably done 15,000 sermons in his life, right? I might've seen him twice. That's why I don't recommend people. And if I say, okay, I saw something on YouTube and I liked it, this is the guy's channel. I always say, I'm not recommending it because as soon as I do, somebody's gonna come back and say, well, this guy is apostate. Okay, I'm not recommending, I'm just letting you know that this is something interesting somebody sent me, okay? Uh, and that's why I do that, because I haven't seen everything that Charles Stanley did or that Les Feldick did, but they have benefited a lot of people over the years. Yes? Uh, you was talking about Peter. He, he was a Jew. Yep. His dad, his granddad was probably a Jew. Tradition means a lot. Oh, yeah. We had neighbors, the, the girl, Jewish, they right. were Jewish neighbors. Right across the road from you. And she, she went to church to, to Grace a okay. lot. Oh, okay. Okay, and she says, my dad wouldn't like this if I changed over to a Christian faith. Right. Tradition meant- Oh, absolutely. So Have you ever watched Fiddler on the Roof? 
Oh, it's a great movie. I got to tell you what, even it doesn't matter if you like musicals or not. I can't stand musicals. I, I, some people love them. That's not my thing. But I really like Fiddler on the Roof. And that is the main theme of the entire movie. As a matter of fact, one of the songs, tradition, tradition. Okay, exactly what you're talking about there. Watch Fiddler on the Roof if you ever get a chance. You'll really enjoy it because one of the, he's got three daughters, I think it was. And they all do things that drive dad crazy because he's a traditional Jew, and one of them wants to marry somebody that isn't approved by dad, and then the second one, and then the third one does the unspeakable. You can imagine, because you're just talking about it, okay? Watch that movie, and you'll think about that girl. Now, it, you're right, it's very hard to get away from tradition. It's very hard to get away from, I grew up with this church, and the church may be going completely south, but I'm gonna stick with it because of tradition. Watch Fiddler on the Roof. What a great movie. He was also in a Bond movie, the one where he played the Greek guy that was always eating the pistachios. And uh, uh, yeah, okay, that's the same. I didn't know that until he died and I was looking up his, uh, his uh, life stuff and, he, and it wasn't too long ago that he died, but he, he was a regular movie guy, but he did Fiddler on the Roof and he did a great job Yeah, he that. did. Absolutely, 100% perfect. Yeah, I wouldn't say perfect, okay, no, because no, you know. Yeah, he, he did a very good job of acting. I, I, I wouldn't say perfect because I, I've got one that I know is perfect. Absolutely, not me. Definitely not. Definitely not me. Okay, we're in three three. And do we have time before you read it? Uh, we got eleven uh, nine minutes. Let's see here. Three three is. Let me see how long this is going to be. Oh, we got time. Okay, go ahead. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Okay, little different that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. So basically, same basic thought, but just a little, little differently worded. Okay, in the previous verse, Paul noted that he had sent Timothy to establish you, his words, and encourage you concerning your faith. He now notes that this was so that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. In the coming verse, he will note that he had previously told them that they would suffer tribulations. Thus, the afflictions are being used in a comparable manner to tribulations. In saying that no one should be shaken, he uses a word unique to scripture, saino. It literally means to wag the tail. Hence, it by implication can mean to greet, to flatter, or to disturb, depending on, you know, because people will say, you know, something like that, and you can depend on the, the context, it can mean different things. However, it appears from the context that the original meaning is appropriate. Just as easily as a dog shakes its tail, so could a believer be shaken if they were not prepared for what lies ahead in the afflictions that are sure to come, which is exactly what I was talking about earlier. Oh God, why did you let this happen to me? And all of a sudden, God becomes the one you blame, you walk away from your faith because you weren't grounded in scripture. You weren't grounded in your faith and your relationship with the Lord. And it's not, you know, if bad times come. I'm sorry, it is bad times are going to come. We all are going to face them. I've got a wife. She's got a husband. I love her immensely, and if she dies before me, that is going to be a bad time for Charlie Garrett. On the other hand, well, anyway, I, she, I, she would not know what to do without me as well. We've been married 39 years, okay? And so, um, you know, I better not say that because it's uh, somebody 
anyway, I, a very sad situation between uh, a couple that uh, one of them died, and uh, I, I, I don't want to give it away because if I do, anyway, it's a very sad situation. You can lose your faith very quickly over things, and you shouldn't, okay? You need to hold on to your faith in Jesus above everything else, okay? Anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Yeah, if they were not prepared for what lies ahead and the afflictions that are sure to come. Paul then reminds them of something he has obviously already told them about. And as will be explicit in the next verse, which as he says, you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, meaning troubles and afflictions. We're appointed to it because this is a fallen world. You're born into it and you got to expect it. Okay, no Christian is exempt from tribulations and anyone who was brought to Christ with a message of security and prosperity was brought to him under a false presentation of the gospel. These things may come, that's true, but the opposite is what should normally be expected. That life is gonna go on, that if you're sick and unhealthy, you're gonna stay sick and unhealthy, you can't claim your way to prosperity, you can't claim yourself out of a wheelchair, okay? That's not reasonable. And that is not found in the Bible, and it is not something you should cling to and depend on. The world hates the gospel message because the world belongs to the devil. And the devil will do everything possible to destroy the faith of God's people and, and to undermine the spreading of this message. Any church that teaches the prosperity gospel will be held accountable for mishandling God's word. That's all there is to it, because it is not a true presentation of what God is, is doing. The one who receives Christ is to be instructed in the epistles of Paul, along with all of the rest of the Bible, but I'm saying Paul because it's the church-age doctrine, and the instruction is to be used by maintaining proper context. In such instruction, that person or those people will learn that tribulations are to be expected, but they will also be prepared for those tribulations by being grounded in the words which have been given to prepare them for those things. If you don't know the Bible, you can't be prepared for it, okay? Um, I heard from somebody, I better not, we don't have time. Okay, life application. Are you having trials and troubles in your Christian walk? If so, then it is something that the word said would come. Read John 16, 30, 30. John's, oh yeah, in this world you'll have troubles. But I have overcome the world. Take courage. I Take, yeah, absolutely. That's, it's a wonderful verse to remember is that we are going to have troubles. You know, he's speaking to the apostles, but they speak the same thing right to us in the epistles. We are going to have troubles. We're not to expect happiness, good times, and prosperity. If they come, we wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Lord. It's, it's great. And if they don't come, you should wake up and say, Lord, I'm one day closer to being with you and out of this place. Thank you. Either way, the Lord is to be praised for what he has done because he sent Jesus to redeem us. Okay, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to pray for the people that are uh, listening now, that are of this church, that may be you know, listening later, that are having afflictions, that may be having troubles in their life, trials and difficulties. Lord, your word tells us these things would come, and so give them a sense of hope in their affliction. And if you want to take away their affliction, we would pray for that first and foremost. But if you don't, 
Help them to understand that you have a better plan for us and that this is just a temporary walk on a, a road that leads straight to glory. And what a day that will be when we stand in the presence of all of the other saints and are able to praise you. May that day be soon. We pray this, that you'll be glorified in your people and that we will be built up in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's back this up. We'll say goodbye to these folks now. We love you guys. All right, let me back this up here. Break.